forward to, to the season and uh, looking forward to uh, the 11th. Just echo what Paul said. We'd love to have everyone, you guys here, and uh, we have a good time together. And it's uh, a good time of food, fellowship, play Dirty Santa, and uh, all that's a uh, good time. Well, this morning, we are, um, Lord willing, going to finish up our little mini-series on worship. Um, this is lesson five, part five on this uh, little mini-series. And uh, before we do, just want to highlight a few books here, some that I've been basing off of. Um, it's not all of them, but this one here, um, you've probably seen me quote David Peterson a few times. This book's called Engaging with God, a Biblical Theology of Worship. Um, highly recommend it. It's a bit technical in places. Um, I relied on him for a number of things, some of the word studies and stuff I've done. Um, he just walks through the Bible, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, sort of as I've done, and uh, just really good. We used this book in, uh, in seminary, uh, very helpful, but it's not um, inaccessible to the, to the layman. I mean, you can, you can, um, Go through it pretty pretty well. This one here is called "Created for Worship" by a man named Noel Du. Um, he is at RTS, I think. Uh, very helpful book as well. Another sort of biblical theology works in the Bible. Uh, the topic of worship. This one here is by a man named Brian Chapel. Not sure if you're familiar with the name. Christ-centered worship. This one is going to be really focused around um, corporate worship, um, especially what worship looks like in the corporate setting. And he's Presbyterian. Um, and really start focuses on a liturgy and the importance of form and structure within worship and having the gospel shape your worship services. Very helpful book. Um, encourage it just for expanding your thought. Another book out there is MacArthur's book on worship. I think it's called Worship. What's it called? Worshiping by the Book or something like that. Um, pretty helpful as well. Uh, so if you all want some other resources, some that I've um, used as well in this, in this study, I, I would recommend those. Um, John Piper has another um, series he's done. I don't think it's a book. Um, it's called Gravity and Gladness on Sunday Mornings. Um, you can look that up. It's on corporate worship, the idea of gravity, the weightiness, and also the joy, sort of this mixture of weightiness, gravity, and gladness on Sunday mornings. And he does a seminar on worship. I recommend those as well to you if you're interested in some further study. Um, but this morning, uh, we will um, dive into our uh, little mini-series. And um, really the purpose of this mini-series was to take a, take a break from John. From time to time it's, it's helpful, just as we're doing an exposition, to take a break. Um, come to a, a point that's significant, that needs some fleshing out. And that's what we're doing here. Um, worship is very significant to these first chapters in John. That's where everything is moving. It's, it's the goal of Christ's redemption. It's what he's recreated, this, this new worshiping community, which fulfills everything the Old Testament expected. For worship. Um, so that's why we have uh, taken time to, to look at it. Um, it's very significant for our culture. Modern evangelicalism, you just look around, there's so much confusion for what worship is. Um, it's, it's so um, unbiblical in many ways. Um, and in many ways, it's just, just off the target a bit. Um, and so we just want to focus on this to get... Um, our eyes focused on really what the Bible commands us to be doing. Um, so where have we been? Let me put up these little diagrams here for you. And uh, <clears throat> last time we'll, we'll use these. Um, first few weeks we looked at worship terminology in Old and New Testament. And you can see sort of these two words, the, this serving word group 
um, latrural word and this bowing, bending word group. Um, looked at those, and we saw there's a lot of continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. Both of these words carry over. Um, in the New Testament, they're developed a little bit. So the Old Testament, there's this idea of bowing, bending, uh, proskuneo. It's almost exclusively at the temple. This idea of submission, dependence, thanksgiving, fear, all sort of within this word, um, usually accompanied with sacrifices. There's this other word, latruo, is this word serving or slaving. Um, and it expressed obedient devotion. And in the Old Testament, that was expressed in general in just commandment keeping. You were God's slave. You belonged to him. He owned you. He possessed you. You worshipped him by a lifestyle of obedience to his commandments. And um, it was also expressed in temple rituals um, by the temple and the, and the priest's daily service, the offerings and all those different things. But when you come to the New Testament, we see that this word is still very temple-centered, but as soon as you come to the epistles, it almost disappears completely. Proskuneo, uh, this bowing, bending word, is almost gone entirely. The heart essence of it, this submission, dependence, fear, all reverence, that carries over. But the word doesn't because we don't have a temple, we don't have a place, we don't have this, this posture, it's not required for New Covenant believers. The word that is almost always used when you read the epistles and worship terminology is used, it's almost always this word or a word related to it, this serving word group. And what we saw last week is that our worship in New Covenant worship is fulfilled in both of these ways. General commandment keeping in your life, a general submission to God's will, and also the temple rituals are fulfilled by you. Not because we have a temple, but they're fulfilled by you in, in certain ways, in personal worship, and in corporate worship. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to sort of zoom in now. Last week we are in Romans 12. Um, sort of gave you this, this paradigm. That's this next uh, um, diagram here. This paradigm here is how we're, how we're to think of worship in the new covenant. And we said there's worship. There's this lifestyle of worship. It's all-encompassing. 24-7, 365 um, of, your, of your life. Um, the lifestyle of worship. But at the heart of that is corporate worship. In other words, corporate worship is not the sum total of the worship in your life. You live life most of your time not in corporate worship. The entirety of it is to be worshipped. That is an attitude of submission and devotion to the Lord, obedience to him. And yet corporate worship is significant. We said it like this. Corporate worship exists as an ingredient, essential ingredient, comprising part, but not the whole, of a Christian's life calling of worship. It cannot be neglected, but neither should it be made the sum total. In other words, you don't only worship when you come to church, but neither can you worship without coming to church. Um, it's essential. So we, we said that your worship, your, your, your lifestyle of worship, finds particular expression in the corporate assembly, and your lifestyle of worship is helped. It's nourished. You will not be a good worshiper of God in all the time that you're not at church if you're not worshiping God with his people. It nourishes, it helps, and assists your lifestyle of, of worship. And we saw exactly this sort of paradigm in Romans 12. Paul says, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Your bodies, everything you are, this very physical, tangible thing, a living sacrifice. What is that? 
um, Paul fleshes it out by saying it is living a life devoted to doing the will of God, discerning the will of God. Your minds are being transformed, renewed by the word to do the will of God. That's what it looks like to offer your body as sacrifice, worship, this whole thing. And where does Paul go first? Immediately he goes to the corporate setting, to the using of the gifts, to devoting yourself to one another. <clears throat> so that is worship. Um, there's the lifestyle of it, and then there's the corporate aspect of it. We saw that in Romans 12. Well, this week what I want to do is I want to zoom into each of these and um, look at corporate life worship in the church and then a lifestyle of worship. Um, so let me pass out the outline really quickly. <clears throat> and uh, we'll go... this this morning, um, there's probably a lot of things you could mention here. What, how am I determining what to select to pull out to talk about? I'm specifically looking at contexts that have to do with worship terminology. So whether it's this latrua word, this serving word, or words related to it, or context of a temple, or things related to a temple, offerings, sacrifices, sweet aromas, um, all of these uh, sort of temple words, any place in the New Testament epistles that mention those things, that's where I'm looking. And I want to summarize all those um, for us. So, so that's my method of investigation. So let, let's uh, look first here then at corporate worship. Um, Roman numeral 5.C in your outline, corporate worship. At this point, I want to investigate first the nature of corporate worship and then the activities corporate worship because when we look at all this vocabulary these are sort of the two things that are going to merge there's the nature and then there's the activity so first the nature of the corporate assembly how should we think about the gathered body of believers what we're doing right now what we're about to do um, in a few minutes in, uh, in the corporate assembly what's so significant about the corporate gathering Perhaps the most relevant description in the epistles of the corporate gathering of the church is that the church is God's temple. In John, we learn that Jesus is the new temple, means he's the new access point to God. He's the fullest revelation of God to us. Paul also says that the, your individual bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But perhaps the most dominant use is that the church, the gathered assembly of believers is the temple of God. Why? Because God dwells with his people through the Holy Spirit in a special way um, when the body comes together. So look with me. The first passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The church, the gathered assembly, is God's temple. Is very significant for um, this topic of worship. First Corinthians chapter three, verse sixteen. Paul's talking about um, being careful how you build, how you minister um, within the church. Careful what kind of materials you use. Be careful how you deal with the church. 
And then verse 16, he says, do you not know that you, it's plural, you all, he's writing the Corinthian church, you all are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you all. You church. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Because God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He's not talking. I think sometimes we read this and we think he's talking about individual believers. Paul will say that later in 1 Corinthians 6. Here he's talking about the church, the corporate gathering. And Paul says if someone comes with false teaching or seeking to create divisions, he is destroying the temple of God. It's significant. It's the dwelling place of God through his spirit. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 now. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. This is the context here. Um, we use this verse often with, with marriage. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's right application of it. But the primary context is church discipline, um, the purity of the local church. Chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Lawlessness. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What's the answer? There's no agreement. In other words, it shouldn't have anything to do with it. For we, the church, the gathered assembly of believers, are the temple of the living God. Look at this. Now he quotes Leviticus 26. I will make my dwelling among them. And walk among them. And he quotes Ezekiel 37. I will be their God and they will be my people. Remember from a few weeks ago we, we highlighted that? Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. From every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The church is God's temple, and Paul says, therefore, that has massive implications. We must pursue holiness individually in our lives and corporately through church discipline and through pursuing the holiness and, and maturity of, of one another. So I just want to highlight these passages. Several times in Paul highlights the importance of the church because it is a temple. Um, it's significant. It's not to be treated lightly. Look over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. You're no longer, he's talking to Gentiles. You Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens separated from Israel. But your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus here, not simply to the universal church. Look what he says in 22. In him you also, you Ephesian church, you also are being built together. 
this idea that you're progressively becoming a more and more suitable dwelling place for God by his spirit. As you progress in holiness, as you grow together in one another, you're becoming more and more an ideal temple, a dwelling place for God, a suitable place for his dwelling by the spirit. You're being built together. This gets expressed as believers gather together in specific local churches. So it's not just this simple uh, amorphous blob like Pastor Farrell talks about, the universal church. That is the temple of God in a sense, but it's always manifested in local assemblies of gathered believers. They are the temple of God. David Peterson said this, The people of God continue to be the spirit-filled community when they disperse and go about their daily affairs. But their identity as the temple of the Lord finds particular expression when they gather together in Jesus' name to experience his presence and power in their midst. So when we gather, we are gathering as the temple of God. The Spirit of God is among us in a unique way that he is not when you're by yourself. And all of the instructions in Ephesians, chapter 4, 5, 6, all overflow from this reality that we are the temple as we gather together. We'll look at that in a little bit. Really quickly, not only are we the temple of God, but all the ministers, uh, members in this temple are ministering priests. Look at First uh, Peter chapter 2. So think about this. Now we are gathered. We are doing this right now. We are experiencing this temple community. But what are you as a member? First Peter will tell us how to think of yourself. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones. You're a living stone. That is, you've been made alive by the Holy Spirit, and yet you're not just sitting somewhere as a living stone. You're not just isolated. What are you? You're put together with what? With other living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house. This temple again. With other regenerate believers. That's why we emphasize regenerate church membership. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Because you're regenerate, you're made part of other regenerate believers. In a community. In a temple. But that's not the end. You're also not just a stone, you're a priest. That means you have direct access to God through Christ. And not only that, but you have an activity. Priests had ministering activities they did in the temple. What is it? What well, sacrifices? Peter says you offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, what's that? Peter doesn't specify. I think it's very similar to Romans 12. It is this general lifestyle of obedience, but it's specifically the commands and the will of God that's to be practiced within the corporate gathering, which is what we're going to be talking about in a minute. One thing I want to highlight to you here, look at that very last phrase, made acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Um, I was thinking about that yesterday, thinking about worship, um, whatever it is that I'm, I'm doing in my life, whether it's just a lifestyle or, or general activities. It does not feel acceptable to God. I feel very sinful. I feel how in the world could I present anything to God that he's going to look at with favor and accept and be pleased in. You don't have anything. I don't have anything in myself. Look at that phrase. Acceptable to God through Christ. 
you begin, you become a living stone, you become a priest by faith in Christ, and as you minister in the church and live a life of worship and devotion, it's acceptable, not because you're acceptable in your own, but it's acceptable through Christ. That's how you offer it. God is pleased, in other words, with your worship, what we're going to unpack in just a minute, because you offer it through Christ, in dependence on him, in relationship to him. Having been purified and cleansed from all the junk in your life, made acceptable to him. That's a massive encouragement, guys. So let me unpack just a couple implications. You can see it on your outline here. What, what does all this mean? Because we're a church, um, that we're a temple. It means the assembled church is essential. It's not man's idea. It's not optional. It's God's ordained way for his presence to be experienced among his people. Number two, since the corporate gathering of believers is a temple, therefore it's holy. It should be taken seriously. We should take the corporate gathering very seriously. It should flavor um, how we do church. That's what Piper meant by the gravity of Sunday morning. It's gladness, but it's also weighty. Um, it's holy. It's a temple. You don't just waltz into the temple of God. It's to be taken seriously. Number three, the temple is not just a building, nor is it furniture. The temple is the assembly of regenerate believers. As regenerate believers gather together, that's the temple. Not a building, not a place. Number four, because the assembly of believers is God's temple, therefore all the worship that goes on in it should be treated with holiness and purity. In other words, we worship not however we wish. We worship in accord with how God tells us to worship in the church. We don't do church however we think we could do church. We do church in God's way. It's God's temple. We do it in line with his will. So look at the next point here, the worshiping activities of the local church. That's the foundation. That sets the stage now. Because the church is this temple, therefore the activities that go on in it is worship. Just like in the Old Testament temple. Everything that we're going to talk about grows from this fact. So what are some of these activities? Well, let, let's look here. Let's go through this list pretty quickly. The first thing, first activity, so probably the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of activities of worship in the congregation, praising, praying, confessing, and singing. I put all of these in one category because they're pretty much the same activity, just expressed different ways, sometimes through words, sometimes through song, sometimes through prayer. But it's all basically the same thing. Go to Hebrews chapter 13 with me. Hebrews 13. Verse 15. Hebrews 13, 15. It says, Through him, through Christ, then... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So here, all the temple imagery in that, in that word, all this Old Testament terminology. This is corporate praise. Look what it says. Let us, let us, not just do this at home by yourself. Let us, as a corporate gathering, do what? Offer up a sacrifice. Worship. Worship God with a sacrifice. What is that sacrifice? How do you worship God with sacrifices as a new covenant believer? What's the answer? What is the sacrifice? It's a sacrifice of praise. 
Sacrifice is your praise. Look at how he describes it. It is the fruit of lips. It's the fruit of lips. I take fruit to mean it overflows from your life that's been transformed by the gospel. It's the overflow of the gospel in your life, and it shows itself where? It shows itself first on your lips. So think about this cluster of grapes hanging on your lips, all right? So it's this fruit that's on your lips. What is that? It's your words. It's a life full of the gospel that's overflowing into your words. That's the sacrifice that he calls us to offer. Well, what is that? What are these words? Look what it says. That acknowledges his name or confessing his name. Your translation might say thanksgiving. The, the Greek there is literally confessing. It acknowledges. It confesses his name. What's his name? It's his character. It's his works. So as we gather, we confess, we acknowledge the works, the name, the character, the worth, the glory of God overflowing from hearts transformed by the gospel with one another. That is a sacrifice. That's how we worship God in this temple. And we're to do it continually, is what this verse tells us. Look over at Ephesians chapter 5 now. That's sort of that imagery that tells us that these activities are worship. They're sacrifice-like, just like in Old Testament sacrifices. That's how we do it in the New Covenant. Chapter 5 of Ephesians, look at verse 19. Actually, go back to verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18 of Ephesians. And don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The idea there is fill. Don't think of filling as filling in a cup. Are you filled? How much are you filled? The idea here, filled with wine, what does that mean? It means you're under the influence of it, right? So you're filled with wine, not if your body is full of capacity and all that's in you is wine. No, it means you're under the influence. You're intoxicated by it. Don't be intoxicated. Don't be under the influence of some foreign substance. Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what the point is. Colossians tells us that happens as you are filled with the word of God, individually and corporately. Okay, So be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does that look like? It looks like verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So in other words, verse 18, a life individually and corporately that's controlled by the Spirit, under the influence of the Spirit. What does it look like? It looks like two things. Verse 19, you see this? Addressing one another... And singing to the Lord. Addressing one another and singing to the Lord. There's the horizontal, there's the vertical. Believers, when gathered, are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And they are to sing to the Lord. So what does this mean? Let's think about this. Singing is an important component of the corporate gathering. What we do Sunday morning is commanded by the scriptures. We're not just doing it to fill time. It's commanded. Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. The idea is all kinds of songs. It's to be done to the Lord, okay? But now look at this. It's not merely an individual activity engaged in for one's personal experience. So often we think about corporate worship and the singing that's going on there. It's just for my personal experience. So all these people are just individually doing their own personal experience thing with God. That's not totally untrue. You, you are communing with God. You're singing directly to God, but you're doing it as a body. You're doing it as a corporate assembly. 
this verse tells us the songs which are being sung to God are also being addressed to who? To, to one another. That's really interesting. We are praising God and singing songs to God, but we're also using these songs to address one another. Again, David Peterson says, Mention has to be made of the inappropriateness of designing our gatherings primarily to facilitate private communion with God. Paul would urge us to meet in dependency on one another as vehicles of God's grace and to view the well-being and strengthening of the whole church as the primary aim of the gathering. So when we gather to worship, we're to do so with an eye to assist one another. That should be our focus. That's so different from modern worship. Yes, there's this aspect I'm communing with the Lord, but Paul says as we are singing in corporate worship, as we are praising, yes, we're directing it to God, but we're also directing it to one another to assist. The idea is we're proclaiming the worth of the Lord, the excellencies of the Lord to one another. So often we think of it as just this individual activity, but the corporate setting, Paul would say, get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your personal experiences and direct your singing to God and to one another about the worth of God. Let me put it another way. The fact that people can so easily disengage with the corporate gathering and feel that they are doing the same thing as they are watching it on live stream or on TV or on radio and feel absolutely no difference is massive evidence that when they do gather with the assembly, they totally don't get it. If, you, if, if it's no difference for you, then when you are gathering, I would say you, you've misunderstood it. Now, are there times that you, you have to watch it live stream? Yes, we just went through a season like that, but that's not the ideal and it's not a good substitute. It's not a substitute at all, Paul would say. It's with one another. Put it another way. Corporate worship ought to be a selfless moment in the life of believers. Yes, there's that personal engagement with God, but we are doing it with one another for the benefit of one another. This has implications on our heart attitudes when we sing. Um, think about it. If you, re you refuse to sing songs that you personally don't like, or it's not necessarily your style, you don't feel like it's helping me worship. You see the error there now? It's not about you, is the idea. The focus ought to be on God's praise and declaring his praise to one another, regardless of how you feel about it. Confess those wrong feelings. Obey God, and then the feelings will probably flow afterwards. Another thing to think about is think about the Psalms. When you read the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms are addressed directly to God. I worship you, O God, the psalmist is praising. But if you flip open the Psalter, so many of them are not addressed to God, right? They're addressed to the community. It's about God. Now, many of the songs we sing are about God and about salvation and about Christ. Those are just as much worship, and they're addressed to one another to call us all to corporately look to him. Look at the next activity. Let's go quickly through the rest of these. Preaching the word and responding to it in faith-filled submission. Look, hold your hand in the New Testament, but go back to Nehemiah. Um, <clears throat> First, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. 
Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6. We read this one a while back. Let me reread it. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6. People have just come back from exile. Nehemiah is standing on this wooden platform with the book of the law. Um, he opens it. Verse 5, in the sight of all the people. Verse 6, he blesses the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That's that proskunao word, that bending and bowing. But notice, it's not at the temple. This verse sets the precedence for what we do in corporate worship. Our worship is directed to God through his proclaimed word. It's as God's word is proclaimed that we, we respond to it with submissiveness that we are responding in worship. We worship God not towards a temple, but towards his word. The preached word became a significant aspect in the corporate gathering. Um, you don't have to turn there. Think of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. That summary statement, it says the church devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word. The preached word is a significant aspect of worship in a corporate setting. How are we worshiping through the preached word? We worship as we respond to it with faith-filled submission. That looks like confessing sin. That looks like faith in the gospel. It looks like gratitude for the truth of God. And it looks like a life of obedience that follows. That's how we worship. Number three. We worship through exercising spiritual gifts. We saw that last week in Romans 12. That grows right out of this, this idea of worshiping God with your, your bodies, your spiritual gifts. But look over at Acts chapter 13. I'll show you another one. Acts chapter 13. And you're probably thinking, Michael, this isn't very different from what we do Sunday mornings and it's true. It's a good thing. Um, the point is, is that it's not random, nor is it determined by man. God has told us what to do. It's his temple. And as you do these things, this is how you're worshiping. You want to worship? You engage in these ways. Spiritual gifts. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 2. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. In this list of names. In verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul. That word there, worshiping, is, one, again, one of these temple words always used for the priests in the Old Testament. They were, they were doing ministerial service in the temple. It seems here it's talking about the teachers, the prophets and the teachers, while they were worshiping. The idea is while they were exercising their gifts of prophecy and teaching, as they were doing these gifts of, of, of prophecy and teaching in the church, Paul says that's worship. And the same thing is as you are engaging in the church with the gifts that God has equipped you with, you're worshiping the Lord. Right now, I am worshiping the Lord as I am seeking to teach and unfold the scriptures. As you are doing the things the Lord has equipped you with, that is the way you perform ministerial priestly service in the church. It just gives such a significance to what you do. Even the smallest act is an act of worship. That should be a massive motivation. It's not insignificant. God is pleased with it. Look over at 1 Corinthians 12, while we're on this topic of spiritual gifts and thinking about what we do in the corporate assembly. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is all about spiritual gifts, and I just want to highlight one massive principle 
as we think about what we do in the corporate gathering. Um, look over at chapter 14. I just want to point out, hope, see if you hear something that comes over and over in Paul. You've been given gifts, but the gifts are not for your personal aggrandizement. They're not for your personal reputation, and they're not because you're all that great. It's a gift from God for the purpose of the building up of the body. Look at chapter 14, verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5. He goes on to say, I want everyone to prophesy, and if someone speaks in tongues, someone needs to interpret so that the church may be built up. Verse 12. So with yourself, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 17. You may be given thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Verse 19. In the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others, build others up, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, each one has a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. What's the common word there? Building up. That is the goal of your spiritual gifts, and that's the principle that's to govern everything we do in church. Is it building up? Now, what does that mean? Building up is not making people feel good about themselves. It's not what it means. It means to help people grow in likeness to Christ spiritual maturity, Christ-likeness. So you want to worship God, exercise your spiritual gifts, aiming at the spiritual maturity of your brothers and sisters. That is worship. That is what we are about in the corporate gathering. Aim for the building up of one another. Number four, worship is giving sacrificially. Look at Hebrews again, chapter 13, right after that verse that we were just at. Chapter 13 of Hebrews. I'm going to fly through the rest of these here. Give us some time to discuss. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. So right after that verse that talked about praising God with the fruit of our lips, verse 16, we get, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices, there's that word again, are pleasing to God. In corporate worship, how do you worship? It's through sacrificial giving of yourself in practical deeds and in generous giving to one another. That's worship. That's a sacrifice. You want to offer a sacrifice like in the Old Testament? Sacrificially give to your brothers and sisters. Um, Pastor Farrell's been preaching Philippians um, chapter 2, verse 30, and four verse, um, chapter 4, verse 18, all talk about this fragrant aroma, this offering, and this sacrificial gift of the Philippians. Pastor Farrell will probably talk about it this morning. Um, what does it look like to worship? It looks like sacrificial giving. Number five, worship looks like forgiving one another. Ephesians chapter four, go over there. Ephesians chapter four. This is one of those one another commands, but I bring it up because Paul uses this temple imagery here. Ephesians chapter four. You want to be a worshiping person in the corporate gathering? You need to be offended in order to do that. You need to be sinned against. You can't be sinned against if you're all alone somewhere. When you're sinned against, it gives you an opportunity to worship. Look at this. Chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, slammer, clamor, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, 
as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The idea is that Christ on the cross was worshiping God, offering a sacrifice pleasing to God to atone for the sins of those who are his enemies. And the implication is that as you imitate Christ, you are offering up a fragrant aroma to God. He is pleased as you overlook the sins of one another and forgive one another in the church. Finally, um, observing the ordinances. We can go to a number of places. For the sake of time, I won't. You can look them up. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the two ordinances given to the church. And as we engage in them, it's not for personal. You don't do these by yourself. It's for the sake of the body, for the sake of building the body up and remembering the Lord, honoring Christ, remembering the gospel. So those, I think, um, would be good summary points of what worship is in the corporate assembly. So really quickly, um, let me go through. I'm not going to look up any of these references. I'm going to point them out. You look them up. Your individual life. Not many of these instances occur in the individual life. We know that it exists. Romans 12, that's our first point. It's expressing a lifestyle of devotion. So as you live your life, in your work, as you do day to day, submitting to the will of God in all of life, you're worshiping. But there's other ways that Paul expresses it. The, the second one there is worship to God is expressed as pouring out your life on the worship of others. Philippians 2.17 talks about Paul pouring himself out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of the Philippians' faith. So remember Pastor Pearl talking about it. The idea is that their faith, their life of devotion to God is the primary sacrifice. And Paul pours out his life to the point of death to assist them in that goal. Paul says, I'm a secondary offering. I'm a drink offering on top of this main sacrifice. You want to worship God? Pour your individual life out for the sake of the sacrificial offering of other people. Number three, worship to God in the spread of the gospel. Romans 1.9, Romans 15.16, Paul talks about um, his missionary service. It's like a priestly worship. Um, serving God, the priestly worship, so that the Gentiles would worship God. And finally, worship God as you suffer for Christ's sake. This is the last one. Turn there with me. 2 Corinthians. Don't think of suffering as worship, but it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That means we've been made Christ's slaves. He's conquered us. And he leads us around. We follow him. And through us spreads the fragrance. There's that word of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That is, as believers suffer, as they follow Christ, it is pleasing to God. It's an aroma. You smell like Christ to God when you suffer for the sake of Christ. That's worship. Notice what he says. It's an aroma of Christ to God, but where? It's among the world, those being saved and those perishing. So as you worship God by suffering for Christ, it pleases God. And that smell of Christ goes to the watching world 
And it either attracts people to the gospel or it repels people from the gospel. So as you live your life of worship, it will result in suffering. And that's pleasing to God. And actually that will be a means of his gospel purposes through your life. So that is um, the worship terminology that I found in the New Testament. All those different words, trying to summarize and put them together. There's a lot of other things you could put here, uh, but sticking strictly with vocabulary and, and these terminologies. Um, I think this is how Paul would probably summarize it. Um, your individual life is worship, and it's expressed first um, in the corporate gathering in, in, these, in these ways. So no, that, that is a lot of information there. Um, now it comes down to practical application, how you're going to work these things out. Um, any questions, comments? We've got four minutes before we have to go. Yes, So I was just thinking, I know often uh, people have discussions or disputes and focus on the how of worship, mm -hmm. as in like instruments, yep. acapella, do we sing from the psalms? Can you talk just briefly a little bit about that and yep. the regulative principle and like kind of how yep. that applies to the, how we decide yes. as a body what yes. goes into our worship yep. corporately? I would say there is extraordinary freedom in the New Testament. It's astonishing as much principles and commands that were given. It's astonishing the silence on those things, on styles, um, instruments, and I think it's on purpose. Um, we, we get a hint of that in Jesus' words in, in John 4. You worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's not constrained by a location, an external form. Um, and I think one of the reasons is it is open to culture all over the world. People in many ways and in many places worship God very uniquely. China worships different than Nepal, than Burundi, than uh, Zambia, than, than all these places. So I would say the silence of the New Testament is a principle for us. Um, that we need to be careful about saying this one way is the, the, the correct way. Now, that being said, it brings us back to 1 Corinthians 14. Let all things be done for edification. I would say that in some contexts, one style is not going to be for edification. It's going to be a major distraction. Um, so a lot of that needs to be determined by church leaders. That's why you need to have godly elders that are thinking through these things. Um, and it's not for personal preference. It is what the elders have decided is most uplifting, most upbuilding for the congregation. So I would say there's massive freedom there. Paul says psalms, hymns, spiritual songs means all kinds. Um, and it's going to be determined by culture. One more thing I'm going to throw on here. There's a lot of talk nowadays. It's so American. But with all this race stuff going on, that we need to become uh, a community that reflects the heavenly community. That, that, this sort of culture that, that, that's multi-diversified and all these ethnicities and all these different things in us. That, that is manufacturing a culture in your church that God is not putting together. Christ is the one that builds his local church. And I would say it's a beautiful thing when we have multiple ethnicities and multiple things. But if you're manufacturing that um, by you know, forcing that in your congregation, that's not a healthy thing. That's not a good thing. So um, Christ is the one that creates the culture, I would say, of the church. We have a unique culture. That's not a bad thing. Um, it, it, it's mainly uh, a certain demographic of population. You, that, that, that's not bad. That's the culture that Christ has put together. You look at China. They don't have those issues. Nepal doesn't have those conversations. Um, 
So I say embrace the culture that Christ has sovereignly constructed in your church. Worship him in ways that the elders have determined is most beneficial for that building of the, of the body. Um, but I think there's massive freedom in the New Testament. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's good. Any other thoughts? Questions? Hope this has been helpful. Um, and uh, I know my, my tendency is to be um, quite uh, detailed. I go to 10 subpoints in my outline, and, but I, I just want to be as clear and as biblical and, and stick to the shape of the, the text as possible and help you think through it. And then you go home and, and hammer out some of these specifics. Um, just be general. Pour yourself out for one another. Pour yourself out for one another and devote yourself to the will of God in every aspect of your life. Because of the gospel. Not to earn anything from God, but because of the gospel. Knowing that it's acceptable. Not because you're acceptable, but through the blood of Christ. That's massive motivation. And God is very pleased. Thoughts, questions, comments? Okay, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. And Lord, we offer you no pure worship in ourselves, but only through Christ, acceptable to you through him. And thank you for the church, this temple. And uh, Lord, we ask that you help us to uh, be selfless in our focus towards you and our focus to one another, that we would worship you. Hearts filled with the gospel, fruit dangling off of our lips with words just bursting out of us the goodness and the greatness of your name seeking the upbuilding of one another we love you so much father ask that you would help us you grow us and that you would be glorified in front of a watching world um, that your gospel would be put on display through us we love you in jesus name we pray amen, amen. all right guys you are dismissed so we will uh, see you in the next service Man, see you Saturday morning. Yes, sir.